I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Alex Brady, author and licensed mental health counselor. Her new book is Once a Liar. From the author of The Blind comes an electrifying story of deception, duplicity, and suspense. Peter Kane, a cutthroat Manhattan defense attorney, is extremely adept at his job. On the surface, he's charming and handsome, but inside he's cold and heartless. A sociopath practically incapable of human emotions, he has no remorse when he fights to acquit murderers, pedophiles, and rapists. When Charlie Doyle, the daughter of the Manhattan DA and Peter's former lover, is murdered, Peter's world is quickly set into a tailspin. This psychological suspense novel by A.F. Brady, a.k.a. Alex Brady, draws on her experience as a New York licensed mental health counselor and psychotherapist. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology from Brown University and two master's degrees in psychological counseling from Columbia University. Welcome to the show, Alex. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's great to be here. Well, as I said uh, in the introduction, it says your experience as a psychotherapist uh, and or counselor uh, have helped you create the characters in your books. And uh, we're talking about Once a Liar and the main character, Peter Kane. So what in your experiences helped you to create the character of Peter Kane, sociopath? Um, well... One, being a, a mental health counselor in, in New York, um, being in New York, you, you tend to find a lot of high-powered people who have a little bit less of the, the moral compass than, than the rest of us, and um, having a lot of experience in that, in that arena, and then working in many mental health facilities throughout New York, uh, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of patients who had been suffering from various personality disorders, including narcissistic and borderline and even antisocial personality disorder. So I got a lot of professional experience with the people that we call sociopaths and seeing how they tick. When you say that you, there are a lot of them, that's true, and I guess maybe there are a lot more in New York City, um, which is where I am right now. But you did take sociopath as opposed to, say, no, uh, uh, you know, a narcissist, well, nar- that's close, but not quite the same thing, narcissistic personality disorder. Any particular individual, you know, that you knew personally or know um, that sort of connected you to that diagnosis and wanted you to write about a, you know, in a novel, um, write about a sociopath, uh, Peter Kane? Yes, um, I, in a lot of ways, you know, the the... The state of the world and a lot of the famous people um, who are making decisions out there to have, a, have a way of looking like they're not really as human as the rest of us. And so it was kind of in my consciousness already um, to talk about somebody who is maybe differently abled as far as empathy and sympathy. Um, and so it, I found it very interesting to get inside the mind of somebody who's going through this as opposed to getting inside the mind of somebody who has been victimized by somebody like this. Because in, in many of the books and TV shows and movies, you find you get it from the perspective of somebody who has been hurt by a sociopath as opposed to what's happening in the mind of the sociopath himself. So you're fascinated with the, <clears throat> quote, villain, I guess, right? You want to get inside that guy's head. Um Rather than, as you say, that's true. A lot of the television shows and films are really focused on the victims of sociopaths. So let's maybe just kind of 
tick off some of the characteristics, really specific characteristics of sociopaths. Um, yeah. Lack of, well, yeah, well, you mentioned lack of empathy. To... Yeah, lack of empathy is one, but there are some very specific kinds of behaviors that they sort of, that they exemplify. Yeah, definitely. I think that w- one of the things that I found most interesting is how the the lying component of it because as much as a as a sociopath we think is a, is lying for self-gain, which is usually true, there's there's an incredible ability of a sociopath to spot lies in others. Um, and when you're able to do that, when you're able to, to sort of parse out vulnerabilities from the way that people behave and the way that people act, um, you're able to better manipulate them. And that's something that I found incredibly interesting. And one of the reasons why that tends to be a proclivity um, is because they're so used to lying themselves and so used to putting on masks and becoming someone else to fit into social situations and in, in jobs and in places where they wouldn't necessarily fit in with their, with their abilities and inabilities, let's say. And that was something that I thought was, was really interesting. And, and how, how can we spot somebody who's so adept at lying? Um, and, and that's kind of where Peter Kane was born. Are sociopaths, are they born, speaking of, or are they nurtured? Or is it something that you're sort of born with, an inability to be empathetic and to to, to, and to lie and to point out other people's vulnerabilities or to be able to hone in on them and manipulate them? Um, talk to us about that as a therapist, really, or as a, as a counselor in your experience. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think in... in, in all of, you know, mental health, um, we're always looking, well, what is nature and what is nurture? And it's just the, the constant battle to figure out what, what is inborn and what is, you know, what can happen in your life that triggers things to make you to become one way or another way. And I think that the answer we've found um, through all the research over the years is that it's, everything is kind of both, you know. So there is um, a genetic predisposition um, when it comes to antisocial personality disorder, as well as many of the other cluster B personality disorders. Um, and, but usually there has to be some kind of triggering event, and it doesn't have to be an after-school special level triggering event. Um, but if you were to have the genetic predisposition and you were raised by a parent who has one of these disorders, then you are not going to be raised in a very loving, very happy home. Um, and those are the kinds of contributing factors, risk factors that can spark the inability to understand empathy and the inability to really see how other people have their own thoughts and feelings and everything is not controlled by your own central nucleus and other people are in fact their own human beings with their own wants and needs. So it's, it's a combination of the two, but that's explored pretty in-depth in the book because I wanted to see if you can become a sociopath, can you, can you unbecome a sociopath as well? In other words, can a sociopath, can you really change? I mean, or is that your core personality and it's never going to change? Um, right. So that's the question. That is the question. And I think that in, in my business and the way that I run my private practice and the way that I've sort of always been while I've been a mental health counselor is that I, I believe that everybody has the capacity to change if you want to. Um, we, you can't necessarily 
develop a chip that you're missing, but you can find another way to get to those, to, to get to the same end. Um, so if you are missing a chip, and if that's really what sociopathy is, then you can learn how to use sort of intellectual and cognitive methods to figure out how other people are feeling or what they're going through. So you can kind of live just under the radar as opposed to going full throttle in the opposite direction. Well, I think you've said, and maybe this ties into that, um, or I've read that you've said that, I mean, there's just a, a very fine line between mental illness and mental health. <laughs> and, uh, yep. yeah. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that, really, in relationship to your book or in ex- experiences that you've had with, with, um, with, with clients, your own clients, because I, I agree um, with you. I, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the basis for my first book, The Blind, is that we, we have this idea, there's this sort of societal understanding, or maybe even hope, that there is a huge difference between being mentally ill and being mentally well, and that we can spot people with mental illnesses very, very easily. And it's, you know, we, the, the media has sort of portrayed this wild-eyed, you know, messy-haired look of somebody with schizophrenia, and that's often not at all the case. Um, and there's, there's wild misunderstandings out there of what mental illness really looks and acts like and how pervasive it actually is. Um, and considering that, you know, 25%, 20 to 25% of the American population of adults will be diagnosed at some point, um, or will be diagnosable at some point, that, that's a huge number of human beings. So this is absolutely everywhere. And, and, and the chances that it will touch us either personally or a loved one, um, are, are great. So having a better understanding, I think, is an important thing for all of us to do and to challenge the stigmas that exist. Because we, the blind was, was following a psychologist working at a mental health facility in Manhattan who she herself was suffering from a mental illness. And she was, she was, her life was really spiraling out of control. But there was this idea that because she was a shepherd, you know, she was the one who was this authority figure who was supposed to have it all together, that she wasn't allowed to succumb to an illness. She wasn't allowed to have something like that, and that created for greater suffering. Um, and that's where that idea came from, that I wanted to come out and use, you know, a sort of fictionalized way of, of getting the point across that we're all vulnerable, and we we should take some time to challenge the stigmas and, and uh, you know, look into the way that we actually feel and maybe do some research and find out what it, what's really going on with mental illness out there. Yeah. So it's not really an us and them situation. It's sort of we're all one, and at any one time we can, any one of us can be mentally ill. And um, that, That's exactly right. And anybody who has been mentally ill can end up being mentally well. You know, it's not a life sentence, and, and in, in a lot of ways... Um, you know, a diagnosis can follow you around and can, can make it difficult for you to be, uh, you know, 100% yourself because people will look at you differently if you've been depressed or if you've had, you know, really severe anxiety, that, that things will change, the, the way that, that people treat you will change. But my, my, my message was more that, you know, any one of us can be on either side of that line at any time and um, let, let's increase our sensitivity toward that. Well, you getting back to you and you personally, because I think your own story is really interesting um, about how you be, first, I guess, became a writer and then also involved in in, uh, in becoming a and getting two master's degrees in, in uh, counseling or in 
Um, so let's take it back to, and I think it's what, 2008, um, you said and that you, that sort of moved you into the position of becoming a serious writer or a serious author. What happened to you then? Yeah, um, I, I had been writing forever, you know, I, I just, just for my own personal enjoyment, uh, never, never wanting to make a career out of it or never thinking that I really could make a career out of it. Um, and I was working at a mental health facility in Brooklyn, um, and this was just after 2008, but the 2008 financial collapse had trickled down into the mental health world and, and we were losing funding. And a lot of the other publicly funded agencies around me had already lost funding and had gone under. And so our agency was taking on lots and lots of new patients, and we were, we were completely overwhelmed. And there were entirely too many people and entirely too few clinicians. There weren't enough hours in the day. Um, and everybody started to get really anxious, bogged down, and, and just fully overwhelmed. Um, and it was during that time that I, I said to a friend of mine, I said, you, you, you have to be crazy to work here. Um, and that just sparked the idea of... If I'm working in a mental health facility and I'm the one who's supposed to have it all together and I'm losing it, let's write a book about somebody who's really losing it. And that's where the blind came from, and that's where the protagonist, Samantha James, was, was born um, out, of, out of that experience. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely steeped in, in reality, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, both of your books are steeped in reality. Um, and now, <clears throat> then you and now you have two kids, two children. Mother, therapist. I do, yeah, two little ones, one, one, and two and a half. So, keeping your sanity, how do you do that as a as a mother, as a therapist, children, author, uh, all of this? And I assume you still live in the suburbs. How do you manage? How do you keep your sanity? Um, it, it's questionable as to whether or not I am always you are keeping insane. my sanity. Um, <laughs> but when I do, when I do manage to keep it together, um, just through a, an incredible network of support, my, my husband is an amazingly supportive man who takes um, a lot of responsibility in our family and, and makes sure that everything is, you know, organized to some degree. And also uh, a lot of letting go of the little things, which is something that I, I learned after my children were born because, uh, you know, being... Being a therapist, being a caretaker, I, want, I wanted things, I have a tendency to want things um, well-organized and structured and in a way that's predictable so that I can keep things as healthy in my head as possible. Um, but then, you know, children are the most unpredictable things imaginable, and, and structure is a great goal, but having a day planned out and imagining that it's actually going to go that way is uh, those are those, that's a little crazy. So I've been letting go a lot of things that don't matter, and that's really, really, really been a very helpful mantra to you know not care quite as much uh, about every single little thing, and that's yep. helping me maintain my sanity. <laughs> I just read an autobiography of uh, Jill Biden, and uh, it, it just struck me as you're telling me this. Um, uh, that's uh, so she sort of describes that same. Uh, way of how she copes with all of the hats that she wears, being able to sort of compartmentalize and to be able to, you know, be the author, be the mother, be the, you know, the wife of the politician and to maintain your own career. Um, you have to be able to let go a little bit and, and, and not to be, you know, thinking that you can control, control everything because you can't. But, um, 
one of the things. Yeah, I think I think that's some of the best advice, and I wish I had given that advice to my younger self as well. And also, the other thing that I think helps to maintain anybody's sanity, no matter how many or how few hats they may wear, is to stop comparing yourself. Um, because I think that in, in any career, somebody's going to be doing better than you, and somebody's not going to be doing quite as well. In any mother or fathering that you do in your life, somebody's going to be doing it this way, and you're going to be doing it that way, and people are going to have opinions. And in the end, you can't please everybody. You never will. It's an impossibility. Um, and so I learned to not try um, and that not try to please everybody. And that way, it, it's an incredibly freeing feeling to recognize that there's, there's no chance that everybody will be pleased and people will disagree with things that I do and people will agree and will be supportive. Um, but that, that my journey is what matters to me. Um, and anybody else's journey isn't really any of my business. But don't you think there's a lot of competition among mothers? Maybe even more so than in the business world. Or uh, there's a uh, that I always uh, or I found uh, it's difficult. It, and I agree with you, but it's really hard to not get into that competitive stuff with with other mothers and other kids. And um, I think that's probably the most difficult world to navigate. I agree with you completely. And it, it's new to me. You know, there's there's always the the who wins the birth game, you know, like who had the best birth or the most, and it starts then, you know, who gained the least weight during pregnancy. And it's one of those things that in the end, you're not going to get a prize. And I learned this and that my goals for my children are for them to be happy and as close to self-actualized as possible. And if it, you know, if it takes them eight years to, to do something that it takes other kids seven years to do, then so be it. I'm not going to put my standards down their throats so that they can't function. Um, but I totally agree with you. It's a very, very difficult world out there because, you know, you, you're constantly going to be doing something that somebody doesn't approve of, especially in the world of social media. Yeah, Social media is a whole different. I mean, that is, yeah. So, and and I, I, I mean, I didn't have that when my kids were growing up. So that's a whole other category. Are you saying of, of differences and how to handle it with your children and what you should do and, and all of those kinds of things? Oh, well, I'm not there yet because mine are too young, but I imagine at some point that's a conversation that will have to happen. But I mean more the, the way that people post pictures of themselves as parents. Oh. And, you know, you, you don't see a lot of people posting pictures of temper tantrums in the grocery store and, you know, two different vomits all over their shoes. Yeah. It's, not the kind, it's not the reality and the difficult parts of parenting that people will post about, but they post, you know, beautiful, calm children with their hair brushed and their clothes nice and pressed, um, and you start to get this perspective of, oh, God, everybody else has a perfect life, and why am I having difficulty sometimes? Why is it that my life isn't as picture perfect as these other ones. And we get, we get sort of a skewed sense of reality this way in, in all aspects, not just in, in um, parenting. But in all aspects, you tend to see, you know, somebody's on a yacht, but I'm not. You know, somebody's yes. on this incredible private jet on their way to skiing in Aspen, and, and you know, I'm on the subway. This isn't, well, what's going on? Um, and you're and not with your three kids to be by three kids who are screaming and one's having a meltdown, as you say, and you're on a family vacation and it's horrible. It just didn't work out the way you had planned. But that's not the trip that you take a picture of. And that's not what you see on Facebook or whatever. Or you 
tweet about. Uh, true. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you've had, and just uh, next topic, I mean, when you were, and I want you to talk about this because, boy, the way you handle this is just something I find just uh, something to really um, emulate, I guess, talking about emulating people. But anyway, you were diagnosed with non-cancerous brain tumor at age 17, and how you handled that uh, really says a lot about you in such a positive way. So that's kind of inspirational. Can you tell us that story? Yes, uh, thank you for that. I, I, um, it was a, about a month before my 18th birthday, I, I found a brain tumor. Um, and although it was not cancerous, it was, it was placed uh, very dangerously. And had it grown any more, um, it could have pressed on my brain stem and, and caused paralysis, neck down kind of thing. Um, had it grown anymore, it also would have been more difficult to remove and, and therefore could have just not been removed. So it was a, it was a terrifying um, ordeal. And at the time, um, at the time I hadn't been, I hadn't been a particularly, you know, reputable kid. I was, I was, I was perfectly normal and I was a perfectly decent child, but you know, I never really lived up to stuff. I didn't, I didn't, find that I needed to try at, at school. You know, I would go, and, and it wasn't important to me. I had, I had these other goals as sort of not, not the kind that you would leave a great legacy behind. And so when I was faced with this, the, the, most of the doctors told me that I wasn't going to make it, and in the off chance that I did make it, it would be, you know, a really, really altered life. Um, and so I took the opportunity. Say again. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said something. Um, so I took no, that opportunity ahead. to take the time I had left and make something of myself. So I, I got straight A's for the first time um, and, you know, really started focusing on the things that I could be and the things that I could do. Um, and then uh, five weeks after they found the tumor, they took it out. They told me it was a 12-hour surgery scraping off every cell of the tumor. Um, and they told me I'd have to stay in the hospital for two weeks and I'd have to take at least six months off of life uh, to recover and really regain my, my faculties if, if everything were to work out. And I said, nope. I left the hospital after five days and went right back to school, graduated high school, and then went around to Europe for a little while, having a lot of trouble physically moving and in really extraordinarily excruciating pain all the time. And then I went to college because I said, you know, I've been given this opportunity to live and do it right. I'm not waiting. I'm going. And you didn't just go to college. You got, you went to Brown university, um, Ivy league school, and then another Ivy league school, Columbia university, two master's degrees. Great. Um, as I say, as I said before, I guess it's really, you're very inspirational and we have to say goodbye because we have like two minutes left. So, but, uh, I want to make sure that everybody knows the title of your book, uh, Once a Liar. And, uh, the author is Alex Brady. And you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. So, Alex, tell us where, uh, websites we also can go to to get more information about the book and about you. Um, my website at afbrady.com has all the information about the books, lots of links to different places you can get it, different formats you can get it in. 
um, and any information that you have about me and upcoming events that I'll be doing. And there's a, there's a contact form if you want to reach out because I, I love talking to readers and it would be great to hear from everybody. Terrific. And when's your next book coming out? <laughs> oh, coming out, I can't tell you. I'm finishing it up now and hopefully it will be out in the world soon. This one took me a little longer than the others with a, a one-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. It uh, takes quite a toll. <laughs> yeah. That's the biggest challenge. Uh, um, great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Catherine. It's been great. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 